1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck.
0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us this week. We have a great, great episode for you. Our our guest today is Maria Gallucci, and she is a journalist for the International Business Times. She covers energy and the environment, and I'm so thrilled to have her on because she's covering, um, in a recent article, an aspect of our transition away from coal that we haven't exposed on Go Green Radio. You know, we've talked about our nation's energy portfolio and how, you know, transitioning away from using coal for electricity is good for the environment, good for human health, but... There are people who are coal miners and people who are reliant upon coal companies for their family's income and that's the aspect the human element that Maria has covered in an article that you can check out on IBT it's um it's called Seeking a Life After Coal in Ohio. Well, welcome to Go Green Radio Maria. I am so glad that you could join us today. I'm glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, in your recent article in the International Business Times, you gave readers a look at the lives of coal miners who are losing their jobs in Ohio. And you list three main reasons that the coal industry is suffering in the U.S. Um, You talk about plunging coal prices, weaker demand for coal, and stricter environmental regulations. And I'd like for us to talk about this first issue, plunging coal prices. What exactly is causing coal prices to drop?
2: Sure, well, when we think about coal, there's actually two types. There's metallurgical coal, which is used in steel making, and thermal coal, which is what we burn in power plants. So metallurgical coal prices have been plunging over the last couple of years. Um, they're down as much as 75% since, since 2011. Um, and that's really because there's a, sort of a glut of supplies. Um, mining companies thought that there would be this booming demand from China, from India, from Brazil, and started making a lot of it. Um, but what happened is demand isn't as, as strong as they expected. And so now they've got more coal, really, than the market needs. Um, that's why prices are so low.
0: Well, and I know, you know, you just mentioned three of the BRIC countries, Brazil and Russia, India and China are the four. What is it about the economy in China, India and Brazil that um, has caused this weaker demand for coal? What factors have contributed to a decreased demand for American coal?
2: Well, it's really a mix of factors. That in Brazil, certainly, the economy is going through one of the worst recessions in in three decades, um, and so that affects things like manufacturing, industrial activity, uh, not um, and steel making. There's just not as much consumption of coal in China. Um, there's sort of this reevaluation of the way that the economy has been burning through massive amounts of coal, producing at um, kind of unsustainable rates for manufacturing and industrial activity, um, and so. It's just sort of this reassessment of maybe, maybe, you know, we're doing things too quickly in an unsustainable clip and and we need to slow down or, you know, whether or not they want it to, the economy is slowing down in a way. Mm -hmm.
0: And finally, you mentioned stricter environmental regulations that are impacting the coal industry. And I'd really like for you to go into some detail to explain that, if you would.
2: Sure. So, um, actually, under the Obama administration, um, nine new uh, roles, rules relating to coal plants have come up, um, either been passed or are pending or are tied up in the courts, but they're all on the table. Um, some are for m- mercury and air, toxics, uh, air toxins, such as uh, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, particulate matter. There's rules for ozone, um, which can really cause and aggra- aggravate um, asthma. And then there's also, of course, the Clean Power Plan, which the Obama administration finalized last year, and that's to lower carbon dioxide emissions in states. And it's really expected to encourage states or, I guess, force states to um, depend less on coal and more on lower carbon sources like natural gas, uh, renewables like wind and solar, um, nuclear, uh, anything other than coal, really. Mm -hmm.
0: And when are these regulations you know, set to to go in place? Are they in place now? Is there uh, some year out in the future that we have targets for? You know, wh- what are the particulars of these regulations?
2: Sure. Well, it's, it's really a hodgepodge because, for example, the mercury and air toxic standard was finalized in 2011, um, but that has been... Um, it's on hold or I, I can't remember exactly, but it's something happened in the courts where it's in sort of limbo right now. The mm-hmm. Clean Power Plan, the Supreme Court um, recently uh, put a stay on the implementation of those rules, which basically means states. It doesn't mean the rule goes away, but it means states have longer to comply or they don't need to worry about complying with it right now. Um, A lot of the rules, though, do set targets for 2025, 2030. If they do go into effect, um, that's, you know, in the next decade is when we could start to see major reductions. And we already actually have seen major reductions in sulfur dioxide uh, because of earlier regulations that um, required plants to put scrubbers on or other types of kind of cleaning equipment um, and really lower their, their toxic air pollution in that way. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember when that happened. That was when everybody was talking about acid rain, and that's when um, the second revision of the Clean Air Act went into place. And that was, gosh, I think that was back during the first President Bush administration. But if these environmental regulations haven't actually gone into place, how is that impacting coal today?
2: Sure. Well, it kind of creates this um, this atmosphere or this expectation that they will go into place. And so it kind of puts this uh, dark cloud over the coal sector, right? If you're an investor and you want to invest in a new power plant, the coal sector seems to have a lot more problems, a lot more complications than if you were to put your money into natural gas or renewables, right? So it's sort of this, even if they're in limbo, even if they aren't in place right now, there's an expectation that they will be. And, um, you know, I've heard a lot as well that the global climate talks in Paris, where um, leaders from nearly 200 countries agreed to reduce their emissions and fight climate change, sort of sent a strong signal that the world, you know, no matter, it might take a long time, it probably will, but eventually we'll be shifting away from Um, high carbon fossil fuels. And so there's sort of this um, stigma, I guess, now attached to uh, coal power, especially when it comes to new new facilities or uh, maintaining existing ones hmm Well, and it, you
0: brought up an interesting point about investors and the way that they're seeing coal. I know that even some of the large banks are under pressure not to finance coal. And so there have been, you know, protesters who have, um, you know, especially in the mountaintop removal type of coal uh, production in the Appalachian Mountains, they have, you know, really protested against Citibank and some others and have been very vocal about that. And so I can't imagine that that doesn't impact investment as well. You know, I know that a lot of our listeners know that in general, coal is, you know, burning coal is an environmental problem, but could you give us a little bit more detail, kind of an overview of some of the environmental problems that are caused by burning coal for energy?
2: Sure. Well, um, a few specific examples come to mind, um, maybe kind of illustrate what's happening across the country. Um, in Colorado, I talked with folks uh, who like to fish in, in reservoirs that are near uh, a cluster of coal-fired power plants, um, but those plants are emitting toxic particles, they're emitting mercury that settles on the soil, settles in the water, and so it's uh, and. A, the fish eat it, uh, then people eat the fish. So it's really not safe to, to fish there because you're basically ingesting all of the pollution that's coming from the plant. Um, in North Carolina, um, they, there's a big, uh, big concern over coal ash, which is sort of this sludgy toxic byproduct that comes from burning, cl- burning coal. Mm-hmm. Um, Duke Energy has had problems in recent years with leaks, um, with coal ash kind of uh, spilling into rivers and also leaking into groundwater... Um and, and they're investing in billions of dollars now to clean up those facilities, but it's obviously sort of, you know, a, a constant um, hazard or something to watch out for. Um, and then in, in Detroit, Michigan, I talked with folks who live near coal plants and are suffering from asthma attacks, and they have some of the highest rates of asthma in the state of Michigan um, because of the sulfur dioxide pollution that, you know, despite the advances in regulations in recent years, it's, it's still having a public health pro, uh, health impact. And then, of course, climate change. You know, coal coal fired power plants are the biggest source of man made carbon dioxide emissions. So there's sort of this whole complicated array of uh, problems associated with coal plants. There are coal plants, uh, there are operators that do install technologies that reduce emissions, that do um, have safe facilities for the coal, ash, and other byproducts. Um, But that's not, you know, standard. That's not. True of every plant, and so there's sort of risks everywhere. Mm -hmm. I remember
0: Senator Durbin from the state of Illinois, that's where I grew up, um, talking a lot, uh, you know, even just as recently as a couple, three years ago about the promise of clean coal. And a lot of the congressmen from various coal states, you know, were very excited about this clean coal and you know everything was going to be all right we could still use coal whatever happened to that I don't hear people talking about clean coal anymore
2: Right. Well, and actually, in, in Illinois, I'm sure you're aware of the the Future Gen plant, which is supposed to be this big, promising um, clean clean coal or carbon capture and sequestration facility that would capture the carbon emissions and store it underground. It started under um, uh, President Bush and continued under the Obama administration. Well, last year. The Department of Energy pulled the plug because it, like other clean coal projects, have had uh, suffered major cost overruns, long delays. It's just very complicated technology, and there's still huge uncertainty about what actually happens when you store carbon underground or how to use it. Um, that said, there are, are many people who still believe in the promise of clean coal. Uh, there are some folks who say, you know, there's no way we can achieve our goals on climate change without it because you can't remove fossil fuels from the economy and still have it running. Um, But, you know, what we've seen is that this promise so far hasn't panned out that it still faces a lot of hurdles. So um, it's not, maybe it was built as a silver bullet uh, a few years ago and now I think people have sort of tempered their expectations but there still is a lot of work being done on clean coal. It's just a matter of you know, what what they'll come up with and how much it'll cost.
0: And if it'll be in time before all of these companies go bankrupt, your article notes that about a half a dozen firms have filed for bankruptcy protection last year. And you said that many are swimming in debt as the result of expansions and acquisitions made in years when coal's outlook seemed brighter. Can you give us some more details on what kinds of expansions and acquisitions were made? What was the coal industry thinking its future would be?
2: Sure, and and this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with the the promise of China of the BRIC countries. Um, Peabody Energy, which is based in St. Louis, um, they spent about four billion dollars in recent years on an Australian coal mine. Arch Coal um, bought a a coal group, or sorry, bought International Coal Group for three point four billion dollars, and you know they bought these these. Companies, they spent billions of dollars, and then what happened is prices plunged, demand is softened, Um, there's not nearly as much of a market for their coal. Um, Arch Coal, Alpha Natural Resources, and others filed for bankruptcy protection last year, and now Peabody Energy told its investors that they're, they're probably next. You know, We'll find out maybe in a month or so what's happening, but they missed a major interest payment. Um, just because they can't, you know, they couldn't pay it. Um, mm-hmm. So they were banking on a much brighter coal future. And now they have a, a, a huge debt load. Um, and they're trying to kind of survive the market, I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: We've got to take a quick break, Maria, but when we come back, folks, we have so much more to talk about. We're going to go into detail in terms of what's happening to the people who are dependent upon the coal industry for their livelihood. And we're going to hear some um, real world examples of folks that Maria interviewed when she wrote this article. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. And in case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Maria Gallucci, and she is a journalist for the International Business Times. And earlier this month, she published an article called Seeking Life After Coal in Ohio. And we've been talking in the first segment about what's going on with the coal industry, why some of the coal companies are beginning to go under. And now we're going to talk about the impact that that has upon the coal miners and the people who work for the coal companies. So, Maria. About how many people work in coal mines in the US. I mean, if we're going to help an entire industry of workers find new employment because we're transitioning away from using coal for electricity, how many jobs are we talking about?
2: Well, the uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that about 65,000 people work directly in the coal mining sector. That's everything from, you know, working in the mines itself to being an engineer to doing administration. Um, but that's down about uh, 10,000 people from even a couple years ago. Um, so 65,000 people directly in coal and then tens of thousands of more jobs that are indirectly related um, by, you know, say restaurants or hotels or real estate companies that sort of depend on the the coal industry to provide those services.
0: Mm-hmm. And and in terms of pay and benefits, what kinds of jobs are these? I mean, are these minimum wage jobs or are they higher wages with good benefits? Um, what kind of income level do we need to replace if we're going to displace all of these coal workers?
2: Well, uh, coal mining jobs, especially ones protected uh, or within the union rather, um, are, are Pretty uh, high-paying jobs. I talked to some folks in eastern Ohio who who were earning six figures, um, who had great pension plans, uh, health benefits, uh, insurance, things like that. And that's really what kind of is the draw. It's a, it's a you know, um, it's hard work. It's dirty. You're exposing yourself to certain elements. Um, and because uh, at least for union workers, the, the pay is, is pretty decent. So that's a challenge also for workers who uh, for minors who are losing their jobs is um, getting that level of pay somewhere else, especially in the Appalachian region, is hard to do.
0: I, I'm sure it is. And and that's something that we're going to talk about, some programs that might be able to help in just a moment. But I'm curious, you know, my my own dad was a coal miner for 25 years. He retired out of the coal mines. And I I can second, you know, what you were just saying in terms of it being very hard work, Um has, it's very unsafe. I mean, I can remember when there were cave-ins in the mines, and I remember even one time, you know, my dad was involved in in a cave-in, and, and we were notified, and as we were pulling out of, we lived in a rural area, pulling out of the road onto the highway to go to the hospital, the ambulance that he was in went racing by, um, and some of the miners were not lucky enough to make it out. And so, you know, they are compensated for, for doing something that is tremendously unsafe in many ways, um, dangerous, cold, dirty. Uh, sometimes they can't even stand up straight in parts of the mine where it's so the ceiling is so low that they're hunched over. Um, and so it really is a tough job. And after they retire, uh, you know, typically they they receive a pension, but when coal companies go bankrupt, what happens to the pensions of coal miners who've retired?
2: Well, it depends. Um, you know, there's a case going on right now with Walter Energy, which is an Alabama coal company. Um, they filed for bankruptcy protection last year as well, and a judge ruled in December um, that they didn't have to pay the health and pension obligations for about three thousand miners or retired miners and the, their dependents. Um, you know, U.S. courts. In other cases as well, not just the coal sector, um, have found that employers can reject the collective bargaining agreements um, of their employees during bankruptcy proceedings because what they're trying to do is protect the investment. And so there's a, a big concern that what happened with Walter Energy could happen with these other coal companies. It hasn't happened yet, but that's that's a risk, right, when you're in, going through bankruptcy that suddenly the, the promises that you made to your miners, you might not have to keep them. Mm-hmm.
0: And now let's talk about some of the people that you interviewed for the article because their stories are so compelling. Um, There was one man who's 36 years old, and he is training for a new career. His name's Danny Hepburn, and I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about him and his journey from being a coal miner to a new career.
2: Sure. Well, I, I met Danny um, in February uh, in a town near Steubenville, Ohio, and he was actually out on a, a bi- in a big lot um, training to become a truck driver. He's uh, taking some courses to get his commercial driver's license with the idea that then he'll start working as a trucker. Uh, he said he actually hopes to start his own trucking company with his father. Um, he was laid off twice last year, um, at, two, at a Murray Energy Mines in, in Ohio once in May, and then the second layoff came on New Year's Eve. Um, he has three kids, one of which is a baby, and he's the main um, breadwinner for his family. So, you know, thinking about how many times he'd been laid off and sort of the risk of the sector, that kind of th- this feeling that the jobs might not come back, he decided, okay, I've got to do something else. Um, and in eastern Ohio and, and that region, um, trucking actually is uh, a pretty booming industry. Um, it's a sign you know, that the economy is doing well overall. People are buying things and they need trucks to take it from point A to point B. Um, and so there's actually a lot of the coal miners in the area are, are taking a similar path and, and looking to trucking.
0: Well, and and talk about um, an interview that you had with Dale Connolly. He's 55, um, so he's a little bit older than Danny, and you described him as more stressed than optimistic about the future. Talk to us about his plight.
2: Sure. Well, I, I met Dale also at the same truck pad. He was also um, training to get his commercial driver's license, and he was also laid off twice last year at the Murray Energy Mines. Um, but, you know, he he had the feeling of that he had to be there, that he had run out of options and, you know, this is all he had left. You know, other folks I talked to were a little bit more, okay, let's... We'll move on to the next thing. But, you know, I think his age, he said, you know, I would like to retire one day. And that's looking, um, you know, that that date is moving back further and further now that he's... Um Kind of having to change careers. He does have a job lined up. He told me um, once he gets his CDL that a trucking company has, you know, offered him a position. So he'll he'll have work. Um, he said though he expects to make about half of what he did in the mines. Um, and so it's money is tight. His unemployment check has run out because he started collecting unemployment during the first layoff in May. So, you know, by now it's, it's all gone. Um, so they're using savings. He and his wife, they don't really, he said, he told me that they don't go out to eat anymore. They don't really do anything because doing stuff requires spending money. And they don't, you know, they're trying to save as much as they can. Um, and that's true for a lot of minors too. It's really the uncertainty is, is how, do you, how do you act? How do you spend when you don't really know, you know, what your next paycheck will be or how large that paycheck will be?
0: Absolutely. You know, there was a part in your article that touched my heart a little bit because it talked about – Dale eating lunch a packed lunch from home alone in his truck and I can remember in high school um, when my dad who was a coal miner was out on strike and this happened every three years when their contract was up for negotiation and during strikes you know money got very very tight and I can remember my brother and I we were both in high school because everybody else bought their lunch we couldn't afford to do that so um, we had an open campus where people could go out for lunch or whatever, but we would get into um, a little truck that I had to drive and we would go uh, and go to the city park away from, you know, everybody who would see us doing this. And we would eat a packed lunch together in our truck, you know, and it was, it was one of those, we were a little bit sad because, you know, we couldn't afford to be you know, with our friends who were buying lunch and having a good time. And so, you know, I, I could kind of relate to what Dale is going through. It changes your whole life when, you know, that that t- paycheck for the family goes away. Um Now, both Danny and Dale have been aided by a program called Partnerships for Opportunity and Workforce Economic Revitalization, or the POWER program. Tell us about this program and exactly how it helps unemployed coal miners.
2: Sure. Well, the the POWER Program is an initiative of the Obama administration. Um, Last year, they awarded uh, $14.5 million in grants to about a dozen states. And actually, Thursday, they announced $66 million for additional funding to the POWER Program. Um, And so states can apply for this funding. um, And basically, it, it helps them pay for uh retraining programs for workers. So um, the county that I visited in Ohio, uh you if you are a laid off co worker, you kind of have a couple options for what you can do with that funding. You can um, get a two year associate's degree, complete uh the final two years of a bachelor's degree, or you can go into a short term training program uh for example, a a trucking program or learning to be a home health care worker or to work in the oil and gas industry. And the initiative will pay for, you know, up to a point, it will pay for your fees. And for the shorter-term training, it will also help cover things like your gas mileage, your hotel stay, your food when you're on the road. So the idea is that you can retrain, you can learn a new job, um, but it won't cost you anything to do that. And, and also, I should point out that um, many of these programs, there's a requirement um, that it be pegged to a high demand industry. So you're not retraining to be, you know, um, to, to do a job for which there's little to no demand. That's why many of these co workers in Eastern Ohio are training for trucking because that's where the demand is, or they're training for sort of oil and gas related jobs because those are the jobs. And, and so, in the past, the workforce development programs have failed um, because they either, you know, take people out of the workforce for too long and then they start losing money. They're, they're pay- spending money on tuition and not earning anything or they train for a job. They trained for a field and then they can't find a job. So this particular program, I I talked with a few um, public policy professors and they said the way at least that it's being carried out in Ohio um, looks promising because they are targeting those trucking jobs. They are targeting the short term programs that people can get right back to work. Mm -hmm. It's employment
0: related. I mean, that, that seems, you know, really like common sense. But I know that, you know, in other government retraining programs, that hasn't always been the case where, you know, they were training for jobs that actually existed in their area. So that's good to hear. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have much, much more with Maria Gallucci. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. In case you're just tuning in, I'll catch you up. Our guest today is Maria Gallucci. She is a journalist for the International Business Times. She covers energy and environmental issues. And today we're talking about what happens when uh, we as a country... Decide to transition away from coal, what happens to the workers who are left in the wake of those decisions? And we were just talking about um, a program called the Power Program, which is helping um, displaced coal miners find work in other fields and helping to pay for some of the fees that they need in order to be retrained for other jobs. Maria, I'm curious are there other workforce initiatives in place besides the Power Program?
2: Sure. Well, um, nationwide and and also in Ohio, um, there's something called the Federal Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which I believe is kind of the umbrella program that houses the Power Initiative and others. Um, and that's for not only dislocated co-workers but also um, adults who are unemployed or underemployed, having trouble finding work. Um, and and they kind of can focus on a range of things. But really, um, when it comes to coal, the, the power power initiative is the main one um, because it really kind of is, is what will happen, for example, if um, if a coal mine has a lot of layoffs, they send out something called a war notice um, if it's 25 or more people, and that kind of lets um, state or county agencies know that there's going to be a lot of laid off workers or there's going to be a lot of dislocated coal miners. Um, and so when... There's a notice filed. They're able to connect with the, the company, start talking with the workers, and start bring them into the program and, and hopefully get them retraining. But um, the, really they all kind of look, um, to my knowledge, the workforce development programs all sort of look the same. You know, they all sort of try and be flexible in terms of allowing workers to study what they want to study or train in a certain field. Um, but they kind of take a similar model.
0: You know where you find coal mines, you also find the the necessary infrastructure to move that coal, and most of the time that is by rail. And that infrastructure could be used to move a lot of other things. And so, you know, it seems to me like it would be great if where you had you know, coal mines that are, you know, starting to close down, that if you could bring in, you know, solar or wind manufacturing plants into those same communities, you know, you'd have a a workforce, you'd have the infrastructure in place. Are there any initiatives to do things like that, to bring other, you know, manufacturing jobs um, into the same communities where coal miners need jobs?
2: Um, yeah, there are in, in bits and pieces across the country. I know in West Virginia, there's a big push to um, put wind turbines on top of old um, uh, mountaintop removal mines, right? Because they're already sort of flattened and the landscape is already um, ma- destroyed in a way. And so why not, you know, put wind turbines there and start producing clean power um in in Ohio as well there, there are several manufacturing facilities because Ohio is such a you know it's a rust belt state they have a lot of that infrastructure like you said um but it isn't really happening at a scale that it could uh, replace an entire sector yet um I was just thinking about this um, one solar ma- panel manufacturing facility that Solar City is building. It's going to be $5 billion, um, employ thousands of workers, but that's actually going in New York, uh, which doesn't produce any coal. And uh, a lot of where companies decide to go um, for solar and wind depends on um, how eager the state is to receive them, if they're offering tax incentives, um, if there's sort of a big market. And so um, sometimes that doesn't always line up. Even if there is a coal mine closing or there's a coal plant closing, um, there might not necessarily be sort of this eagerness to draw in the renewable energy. Um, Sometimes it's a function of the leaders as well, Um, especially in coal states. There's a desire to hang on to it, to kind of fight for it, to keep it there rather than saying, you know, okay, well, we see where the world's going. Let's move on and and start, start from scratch or start with something new. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, you interviewed somebody that I'm really interested in hearing more about in your article. His name was Michael McGlumphy at the Jefferson County Community Action Council. And I'd love for you to talk to us about the council and how they envision helping the region's economy.
2: It was really interesting meeting with Mr. McLaughlin and the council. Um, I went to their office in Steubenville, Ohio, which is sort of um, you know a coal mining town and also used to be uh, a big steel making town until those plants closed as well. Um, and they're really the small staff there at the council is really the driving force of the the power initiative in Ohio. They have a ten ten county region that they work in to help dislocated workers, but they've been really. Um, you know, insistent that they spread their resources across the state because they sort of just have a lot of um, momentum. They have a lot of capability and experience in dealing with these programs, and they want everybody in the state, not just Jefferson County, to to benefit from these programs. Um, and so, you know, um, M- Michael McLumphy talks a lot with truck training programs across the state. He'll try and find schools and, and maybe negotiate a better rate for the dislocated coal miners um, And so that way it's not as expensive. Um, they can stretch their grant money further, basically. And he uh, also is, is you know, busy keeping his ears open, he, talking to employers, talking to manufacturers. Where are the jobs? Where should we be training these coworkers? Um, one thing that they're eager about or that they're watching for is um, – in eastern Ohio, there's been a big surge in natural gas production, uh, thanks largely to fracking. And so there's this hope that they will start building um, natural gas processing plants, these sort of big manufacturing facilities, which is, you know, has its uh, own slew of opponents and environmental concerns, but they also could bring hundreds of jobs. And so at the council, they're kind of thinking about, well, how do we train these dislocated coal workers to work in these plants um, companies are shopping out states, they're shopping out cities for where they're going to put their natural gas processing plants. And if they look at Eastern Ohio and they see that there's a workforce ready, then that might be, um, you know, a, a further incentive to move there. At least that's the thinking of the council. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, until those plants are built, I know that that could take several years in the making. Um, you know, there is a lot of talk about um oil and gas industry jobs and how many jobs it's creating but for the jobs that are available now how are those different from the kind of jobs that coal miners are used to doing
2: well a lot of the jobs on the the drilling rigs themselves on the you know on the oil and gas pads um, people kind of refer to them as gypsy jobs because you move with the well or you move with the company. So it could take you from Ohio to North Dakota to Texas, uh, you know, Louisiana. It's not necessarily, a, you know, you drive your 20-minute commute to work and back every day. And for younger workers, um, those who don't have families or unattached, that um, that can be attractive. You can make a, a decent amount of money doing that. The problem is for a lot of these coal miners um, – that I talk to, they either can't move because they've got their families there, it's just not a viable option, or they don't want to. A lot of people, um, you know, have generations in, in Eastern Ohio, and they, they, aren't, they don't want to uproot themselves or their family. They don't want to be the family that moves away and kind of lives in isolation from everyone else. Um, in Eastern Ohio, there are some oil and gas related jobs that some of these coal miners are looking to do. Uh, and that uh, kind of ties into this, this push toward trucking, where if you can haul in equipment or uh, water or chemicals or haul out fracking wastewater from these sites, um, then you're still staying relatively local um, and you are taking advantage of um, you know the, the trucking degree, the uh, trucking license that you've earned and other sort of related certifications that you've earned. And that, of course, too, is another resource industry, and there's the likelihood that, you know, eventually we will extract all of the natural gas from the ground or um, it won't be viable to do so anymore. Um, Even the folks at the Jefferson County Council kind of, they think of oil and gas as a medium-term solution. They think, well, okay, for a few decades, a couple decades even, it'll provide jobs, but then eventually that'll probably, you know, those workers could find themselves in the same boat. Right, right, and that's something that you know. I think that as a as a nation,
0: we kind of have to look at. I mean, you know, if we're winding down with the amount of fossil fuels, I mean, they're called fossil fuels for a reason. We're not making them anymore, and when they're gone, they're gone. And we really need to be smart about you know looking at how much is left and how long this can stretch, and having um, a forward looking plan for employment. That's one of the most important things that you know we have to ensure is that the health of our communities and the health of our nation that our people are employed and so I think that that's something that we really have to take a look at Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back um, we're going to talk to Maria about some other issues that have to do with the displacement of coal companies and what happens when they go bankrupt and the, the folks who are left like I said in the wake of these decisions the coal miners and their families as well so don't go away folks there's much more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%?
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Very glad that you're all with us today. Thanks for tuning in. In case you've just joined us, our guest today is Maria Gallucci, and she is a journalist for the International Business Times. We've been talking today about what's happening in the coal industry, and for environmental reasons, we know that we need to transition away from coal you know, and that's been happening pretty rapidly in our country. There was a point just not long ago, just a few years ago, where upwards of 70% of our electricity came from coal-fired power plants. And now, uh, you know, it's it's down below 50. And some stats you'll see closer to 30%. And so this is happening really, really quickly. And there are people who have been coal miners for years. Sometimes their families have been coal miners for generations and they're they're finding themselves displaced really quickly um, and, and having to retrain and recalibrate their thinking around what kind of work they're going to be doing. And this year has been particularly interesting because, of course, we've all been aware of the presidential race that we're all going through, never seen anything like it before. And Maria, I've watched most of the presidential debates this campaign season, and of course, one of the one of the candidates who's still hanging on is Ohio Governor John Kasich. And he talks a lot about the economic upturn in his state and all the jobs that have been created. Um, you spent some time in his state to write this article interviewing people there. Does his narrative about what's going on with Ohio's economy align with what you saw in Ohio's coal com- country?
2: Well, and I'm actually from Columbus myself, and um, Ohio is a Pretty economically diverse states, so in cities like Columbus or Cleveland, there really is, uh, I've noticed um, an uptick in jobs in healthcare, research, technology, kind of the service sectors. Those seem to be growing, and my, my friends there, my family there, um, talk about that a lot. But in eastern Ohio or in Appalachian, Ohio, where I was, there's really um, kind of a hollowing out of the economy. The, the steel industry um, kind of left uh, over the last decade. Coal is declining. Oil and gas has offered some promise, but now with uh, prices so low, um, that industry, too, is kind of slowing down. And, um, you know, besides where I was in Jefferson County, trucking was sort of the big thing that people kept talking about. And one of the next things was actually um, home health care services because the population is getting older. And so they kind of, there's an industry growing uh, of people to take care of them, but that's not necessarily um, an opportunity that everybody wants to have and raises questions about what happens when that population eventually, you know, Ages and uh, and is no longer there. And are there going to be young people to replace them? So um, it really depends on where you look in Ohio to, in terms of how well the economy is doing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to imagine, quite
0: honestly, a whole bunch of coal miners becoming home health care workers. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe you never know. But um, I knew a lot of coal miners. It just it's a different disposition. I'll just put it that way. Um, <laughs> And so a lot of these folks in eastern Ohio, it looks as though there's somewhat of a migration of younger, of the younger generations to some of the more metropolitan areas, some of the, you know, higher uh, population density areas. Um, and and naturally, that's going to have a huge impact on that, uh, you know, that region, of course. Um Maria, you wrote an article back in January that raises concerns about who will pay for coal site cleanup if coal companies go bankrupt. And that is just a huge issue because if that becomes a burden for taxpayers in the states where coal companies shutter, um, that could be um, just an example an unbelievable impact on a state's economy. Talk to us about that issue in some detail. I'd love to hear more about it.
2: Sure. Well, when When a coal company says, we want to build a mine, um, basically since the 70s, the law has required that they post bonds that guarantee their ability to clean up the mine or reclaim it in the future. And there's three ways that they can do that. Um, One is a surety bond, and that's basically getting a third-party insurance company to back you up and say, hey, if they can't pay those bonds when the time comes to clean it up, we will. And that's the most common way. Um, Then there's pool bonds in which... um, Coal miners will pay a tax on their production, and the state will collect that money. And that way, if a coal company goes bankrupt and can't pay for whatever reason, the state will cover that with, the, with that pool bond. But then there's something called self-bonding, and that's for companies that pass a certain financial fitness test can essentially tell the state, uh, you know, we got this. That you know, We give you our word that when the time comes, we'll pay it. We're financially fit. Well, what's happened is these companies have gone bankrupt. Um, Archcoal, Peabody, they have self-bonding liabilities in the hundreds of millions of dollars, or two billion dollars actually, or I'm sorry, billions of dollars across all of the um, companies. And, and not all of them are financially fit anymore. So what you have are these companies that are ailing financially that are giving the state their word that they're going to pay when the time comes. Well, that has raised a lot of questions, a lot of Environmental groups and community activists are, are worried that, um, as you said, taxpayers could be on the hook, or you know if the state can't even afford to clean it up, then what happens with these mines so that's a real um, ongoing concern and um, one example is that Arch Coal, which has hundreds of millions of dollars in reclamation liabilities in West Virginia and Wyoming, recently settled with the states in their bankruptcy proceedings um, for only tens of millions of dollars, so kind of a fraction of the, the liability. So that's, um, that's something to watch out for as more companies kind of go through this. Wow. And,
0: you know, for coal miners, that's a double whammy because not only are they losing their jobs, but they'll be part of the taxpayer base that has to cover, you know, that, that cost. Are, are you sensing that policymakers, public policymakers are even aware of this looming liability?
2: Um in I talked with some um folks some lawyers who work for the state of West Virginia and you know they they told me like it's not going to happen that we we as a state will cover this there's not a risk that that um a bank a company will go bankrupt and leave these mines uncleaned but um I do get a sense that you know, that, that actually it is becoming a concern, but maybe it's not one that people are paying attention to. I mean, when I was learning about it myself and learning what self-bonding versus surety bond versus a, a pool bond, I mean, it's not really sexy stuff and it's kind of easy <laughs> to overlook in, in the mix of things. Mhm.
0: You know, One of the things that you mentioned in the article is, you know, the fact that that coal is being replaced with natural gas in a lot of power plants. And, you know, that has been, there was a reason why, you know, that didn't happen much, much earlier. It's because the price of natural gas versus the price of coal made it such that it was too expensive to switch to natural gas. Um, But the natural gas industry has been pushing for Congress to allow them to sell their gas overseas. And we know that, you know, the European markets for natural gas are used to paying a much higher price for natural gas when they're buying it from Russia. Um, And so... You know, I I personally am concerned that if we start selling American natural gas overseas, the results would be a spike in gas prices even here domestically. If that happens, do you think there's any chance that the coal industry might rebound or do you think we're just past the point of no return on that?
2: My sense is that for the coal industry to rebound, is we would have to see high prices, high natural gas prices for a very long time, and it would have to be a very um, economically tough situation in electricity markets. Um, Otherwise, I I do think the signs point that that we might be at the uh, point of no return or past the point of no return for coal. Uh, When you look at the number of, of. uh, electricity plants being built or the amount of money being poured into new plants, n- almost none of it is going to coal. It's all going to natural gas, uh, renewable energy and solar power, for example, um, I took a look uh, this year at the, the number of new electricity additions coming online. Um, this is federal data. They suggest that about 30% of all new electricity coming online will be natural gas, and 63% will be wind and solar combined, and the rest will be nuclear, hydro, and none of it will be coal. So that says to me that, you know, that, that there's sort of, if natural gas, prices spike and we do want to use more coal, that will require kind of rebuilding our coal sector in a way, which Mm -hmm. takes time and, and billions of dollars.
0: Well, and I know that, you know, for the metallurgical coal, um, yeah, you know, and there was in the, one of the presidential debates. I think it was the Democratic town hall last week. A steel worker was talking to and asking um, Secretary Clinton questions about, you know, what are you going to do for steel workers because there's, you know, this big problem with a, you know, illegal dumping of of steel on an international scale. And I know the coal industry and the steel industry are very much integrated. Um, you know, if if there becomes you know, a resurgence, say, in the Chinese economy where they're starting to build again and they need steel, would that be an opportunity for at least that type of coal to rebound?
2: I think it would be. Um, but Another sort of caveat to that is um, China and other Asian countries are producing a lot of their own coal. So the question would be how much more of it would they need to get from the U.S.? Would they actually need to export it? Uh, or I'm sorry, would they need to import uh, U.S. exports? And, and that would drive, um, the, the, you know, help determine how the demand coming from the U.S. But certainly there could be an uptick and if prices recover, um, production will come back. And Coal companies are kind of um, banking on that happening, um, turning Mm -hmm. around. So while the market for thermal coal is kind of gloomy domestically, uh, you're right in in thinking that maybe metallurgical coal could have uh, happier days ahead, although I'm not sure what the long-term outlook is either. Right.
0: In your mind, Maria, in the final moments that we have left in the show, what are the most important things that America could do to help displaced coal miners?
2: I think the most important thing would be to make sure that the dislocated workers don't fall through the cracks. Um, when I was in Jefferson County and, and talking with the, the folks at the Community Action Council, they were telling me that they, how hard they worked basically to track down these workers and go into other counties where they didn't have services and make sure that they were getting connected with these programs. So, you know, the Obama administration this week announced $66 million in new power grants, but the real um, – The real issue is making sure that that money is put to good use and making sure that coworkers know that these resources are available and that they're using them in a way that kind of sets them on a a sustainable career path thanks so much Maria you know
0: this article was great and I really appreciate you bringing this issue to light you know we can't forget the people who have kept our lights on all these years um, and all the coal miners who've sacrificed so much to make sure that we had a strong energy sector so thank you so much for bringing this to light thanks for joining us and discussing it thanks to all our listeners for tuning in we'll be here same time same place next week with more Go Green Radio until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go
2: green.